not. Okay, hey, if you want, open up your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. We're going to look at the last three chapters. While you're turning there, we're going to receive our least of these offering. Yeah, you had no faith in me. I saw that. Uh, Our least of these offering is an offering we receive once a month, and it goes just to help the poor and needy in Campbellsville. Uh, You might not believe this, but there are people here in town who who, uh, have no food, so we regularly buy groceries. You guys can go ahead and start receiving that. We regularly buy groceries for people who have nothing to eat, keep some lights on for single moms, buy some gas for uh, people who have been down on their luck and trying to make it to work till they get their next paycheck. 100% of this goes just to help the poor, so be generous. Awesome. Well, I want to talk to you uh, today out of the book of Judges. This is going to be a complicated message this morning. We're going to cover three chapters. I'm mostly going to tell you the story, then we're going to read some of the story together. And it's going to take a little while because it's a a big chunk, but I didn't really, couldn't figure out any way to to do this other than just to lump all of this together here. Uh, And the the title of today's message is From Bad to Worse. isn't that a really encouraging message for Baptism Sunday? I realized that this morning. I'm like, wow, this is some irony built right in. Um, <clears throat> but today's passage that we're going to look at is um, it's long and it's complicated. Um, it's difficult and it's interrelated. And it's hard to con- disconnect one episode from the next. They all kind of just run together. But this morning's passage uh, is really ugly. It's really, uh, it's brutal. And uh, to be honest with you, it's rated R, okay? Uh, sometimes you, you may not realize that the Bible is sometimes rated R. There are parts of the Bible that are rated R. This borders on NC-17. Uh, it's hectic. So if, if, you, if you have a little kid in the room with you this morning, uh, you, you, you may want to not. <laughs> I don't you know. I, it's hectic. Okay, so here's what we've got. Uh, What we have this morning is, when we begin to look at chapter 19, we have echoes of chapter 17, verse 6. If we can put that up. This is from our message last week. And it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And this refrain here will be repeated three more times in the the coming chapters that we're going to look at this morning. The Bible is trying to tell us what it looks like when people live doing what's right in their own eyes. So everything that happens, you have to hold that in in your mind this morning. People are living as though what they think is the truth and the right way to do it, okay? And so the truth is, um, people are just, they're just doing what they feel like is right. Uh, and the reason they're doing, they're doing what they feel like is right is because it says in the, that, that day there was no king in Israel. I want you to understand something. This is inaccurate. There was a king in Israel. His name was Yahweh. The trouble is they forgot him, right? They forgot him. They had a king. It was God. They forgot him. And so what we're seeing here is we're seeing a snapshot of Israel forgetting God and everything that happens when you forget God. Everything that happens when you forget God. When we were uh, in prayer this morning before the meeting, the worship guys and I, we hang out in my office. And I was telling them, I said, this seems really improbable, but uh, you could be on the worship band in this morning, but it's no guarantee that you'll love Jesus in 20 years. Why? Because it's possible to forget God. And when you forget God, you'll end up, you'll end up living life and just doing what's right in your own eyes. And when you do what's right in your own eyes, disaster will follow. Just because you love Jesus now doesn't mean that you will in 20 years. It's not just true for those guys. It's, it's true for me. I'm the pastor of the church. 
I've loved Jesus my whole life. There's no guarantee that in 20 years I'll still love Jesus. It's possible to forget God. And when you forget Him, there's some really disastrous things that happen. Really disastrous. So Israel had lost God consciousness. That's what I've been talking about for a few weeks. They lost God consciousness. They couldn't couldn't remember Him. They didn't think about Him. Uh, When they woke up in the morning, they they didn't think about God. They didn't think about God at all during the day. Um, they, they didn't feel his presence. Did you guys feel the presence of Jesus in the, in the room during worship? Yeah. Like, that's really important. It's one of the reasons we get together. Like, some people are like, ah, oh, we don't need to do church. Uh, you're wrong. You're profoundly wrong. And one of the reasons you're profoundly wrong is because uh, when we all get together and when we sing a few songs with, with a rock band, hello, this is really important. One of the things that happens is, is we become aware of the presence of God. God doesn't come in the room more on Sundays. It's just that when we all get together, we become aware of the presence of God that's always here. It's it's part of maintaining God consciousness. Things are happening in the room this morning. So Israel had lost God consciousness. They had lost their awareness of God. And because they had lost awareness of God, they were in the process of losing their identity as a kingdom. And so by the end of the story... 11 tribes are beginning to do battle and war with one tribe. They're a brother, you know. They begin to fight one another. It became civil war. Loss of God consciousness always equals loss of identity. Loss of identity always equals everyone doing doing what's right in their own eyes. When people do what's right in their own eyes, it's always disastrous. Um, Here's what it's like if, if everyone does what's right in their own eyes. It's like everybody in this room is a pilot. And, and most of the men in this room can, can understand this feeling. If, if you're a guy in America, you, you at least had a day in your life where you thought, you know what, I'd like to be a pilot. Probably. Top Gun. <laughs> Goose, where you at? Anyway, um, but this is what loss of God consciousness ends up looking like. It looks like everybody in this room is a pilot, and you've got your own jet, and we're all at the airport, and some of us are landing, and some of us are taking off, and some of us are taxiing across the, the airport, but the problem is it's dense, thick fog, the kind of fog that lives out at my house sometimes. You guys know some of the fog that lives around the lake? You know, occasionally you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's like we're all, some of us are landing, some of us are taking off, some of us are taxiing down the runway in thick fog, and no one is listening to the air traffic controller. Now, let me ask you a question. If we're all in big jumbo jets, thick fog, running around, and no one is listening to the air traffic controller, what's going to happen? It'll be a disaster. Can I tell you something? If David has a plane, and I have a plane, and David's taxiing, and I'm about to take off, and there's thick fog, and neither one of us are listening to the air traffic controller, I could hit David. And you know what would happen? Uh, I would lose my life, most likely. David would lose his life. But here's the thing that most of us don't realize. I've got passengers on my plane, and David's got passengers on his plane, and it becomes a disaster, not just for me and him, but for our passengers, right? Yeah, this is one of the things we're going to see this morning, is that that sin is never personal. There's no such thing as individual sin. It's always communal. It, It has a way of wrapping other people that you didn't intend into the mess. You get caught out in the fog, you need to listen to the air traffic controller. It could be disaster for you. So what I want to do this morning is I want to tell the story... It's going to take me a few minutes, and then I want to say some things at the end, okay? Um, The story begins in verse 1 of chapter 19, and it's an echo of this verse that we've already looked at. It says, the story begins with this, In those days, when there was no king in Israel, 
Here's what happens. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, there was a Levite, and he had a concubine. And at that time, a concubine is not quite a wife. It's kind of like a legal mistress. It's like, you're my mistress, and you're always going to be my mistress, but you're not going to be my wife, right? It's kind of odd, and it was pretty normal, though still odd. So he had a legal mistress. He had a concubine, and it says that in the Scripture that she was unfaithful to him. However, I don't believe that her unfaithfulness was sexual unfaithfulness. I think they had an argument, and I think there's a, there's a textual clue. Let's look at verse 3. Look at what it says. She goes away, she leaves him, and she's staying at her father-in-law's house, and it says that her husband, the Levite, arose and went after her to what? Speak kindly to her and bring her back. I think that they had actually had, I actually think that they had had an argument, and she just said, forget this, I'm done, and I'm going back to my dad's house. And then he goes, it, it, it would be odd for him to go back and for the Bible to record for us that he goes and the intention is to speak kindly to her, right? If she had cheated on him, he probably wouldn't speak kindly to her. I think they'd had a, a, a marital dispute. And some of us in the room are married and have maybe been long enough, married long enough that you've had a marital dispute. Um, maybe, maybe your wife even went back to your father-in-law once. Uh, my wife has only spent the night away from me one time because of, like, anger. And it was because I got really hooped up on allergy medicine, and I went nuts. <laughs> this is an accurate story. I took too many decongestants, and I went crazy. And my, my wife left me for one night. It can happen, is what I'm getting at. And so what happens is, is this concubine, she leaves, and she goes back home to her dad. And finally, the Levite says, I'm going to go back to her. I'm going to speak kindly to her. I'm going to bring her home. And when he gets there, his father-in-law says, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Let's have a party. And he cooks dinner, and he pours some wine, and they party for three days. It's like, yeah, everything's great. And then on the fourth day, Levite says, okay, it's time for us to go home. And father-in-law says, no, don't go home. It's a long journey. Let me cook you something. Let's, let's have dinner. Let me pour you some wine. And then by the time they cook dinner and eat dinner and, and pour some wine, it's late. And he says, oh, it's too late for you to leave. Stay with me another night. And so they stay. On the fifth day, he's about to leave. It's time for us to go. He's going to grab his concubine and go home. But he doesn't. And um, because the father-in-law detains him and says, hey, stay with me. It's a long journey. Exact same story. He says, stay with me. It's a long journey. You'll need, you'll need strength for your journey. You, you need to eat something. And so he eats with them, and they drink some wine. And he says, stay the night. And the Levite says, no, I'm not going to stay the night. We're leaving. And he says, but it's late. He says, I don't care. We're leaving. So he grabs his concubine and his servant, and they decide to head off. So finally, on the fifth day, around evening, they leave, and they head for home. But it's a little bit late, and so things don't go well. And I want to read to you chapter 19, verses 10 through 15. But the man would not spend the night. This is, they're about to stay in a town called Jebus, which is Jerusalem. And at that time, Jerusalem was not uh, a town of, the, uh, of Israel. And so he rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus. And he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside to the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibe. Next slide. And he said to his young men, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibe or at Ramah. These are both firmly like Israel towns, like home team. And so they passed on and they went their way and the sun went down 
on them near Gibe, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibe. And he went in and he sat down in the open square of the city, but no one took him into his house to spend the night. Now, in this time, when you saw a traveler, you were obligated to show hospitality. So the Bible is saying something's already wrong here. People aren't taking him in. And finally, an old man who is from the same hometown as this Levite priest comes through the square and says, Hey, what are you guys doing out here? It's almost dark. It's not good for you to be here. And he says, Well, no one took us in. And the old man says, Well, come to my house. Come to my house. So they go to his house. And while they're at the old man's house, they begin to eat dinner, probably drink a little wine, and things begin to go good. And then things take a terrible turn for the worse. There comes a knocking on the door, chapter 19, verses 22-30. I want to read this to you. And it says, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. How I many of you understand that we may know him is Bible talk for we want to have sex with him? So what's up here? What's up is, is there's a Levite, his concubine, and his servant, and, the, and they're staying with a guy in a town that they don't belong to, and the men of that town come knocking on the door, and they say, here's what we want. Bring the guy out. We want to, we want to, we want to rape that guy. Fun story, right? Gets better. Verse 23, and the man of the house, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Verse 24, behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out to you now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. It gets better. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night long until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And, at, and as morning appeared, the woman came and fell at, down at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. The next thing that happens is, is that the Levite, Gets out of bed, opens up the door. His concubine is laying on the ground. He steps over her and he says, Get up, we're going home. She doesn't move. So he throws her on his donkey and he takes her home. And we don't know when or how it happened, but some somewhere on the journey, on the way home, she dies. Maybe she was already dead when he went out the door. The Bible's really unclear about this. But he throws her on his donkey and he goes home. And when when he went home, he threw her on the table and he cut her into 12 pieces and he sent her body as a testimony into the tribes of Israel. He sent a body part into all 12 tribes of Israel. Isn't this a delightful story? So we have, we have attempted homosexual rape, we have actual rape, we have a dead woman, and we have dismemberment as a testimony and her body gets sent all over Israel. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine this? I mean, is it even conceivable? Woman is dead. She's been raped all night long, and now she's been dismembered by her own husband. And the thing the Bible is making clear to us is that the men who raped her were not as evil, though they were evil, they were not quite as evil or as dishonorable as her own husband who pushed her out the door, right? 
And by the way, the, the, the Bible is, is telling us a really tough story here, okay? Part of the story that the Bible is telling us is, especially when we look at it in connection to the scripture that we looked at last week. Remember last week, uh, Micah has false gods and he, and he hires a priest, to come in, a Levite to come and be his priest. Part of what the Bible is telling us in the last five chapters of Judges is that things had gotten so bad in Israel that even the pastors were evil. Like the, the, the religious professionals are evil. They're the kind of people who would treat other human beings as just property and they would take, take their, their wives and they would shove them out the door to save their own skin. And then in the morning, they would just throw them on their donkey and go home. See, what we're seeing is that something profound has happened. And at this point, the story escalates. Um, as you can imagine, news of this event spread all over Israel. People were shocked and horrified, just like you are. Um, people were, were just shocked. And uh, I, I want you to imagine something right now. Imagine, look at verse 30. It says, such a thing has never been seen from the day the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt. People were shocked and horrified. I want you to imagine something. Imagine, imagine that, that, you're, that you were at your home and someone shows up on your doorstep with a with a body part maybe a leg or a foot or a head would you be shocked and horrified well imagine if they told you the story that that led to the leg the foot or the head showing up on your doorstep how horrified would you be so the people in israel they're they're horrified and they 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 decide to they decide we got to do something we've got to do something and so a plan is hatched and all israel shows up and the, the thing they decided to do is that they're going to fight and they're going to kill the people of Gibeah. Remember, Gibeah is where this episode went down, right? It's in Israel. So all Israel is shocked and horrified by the story. And they say, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get together and we're going to teach the men of Gibeah a lesson. We're going to kill them. And so Israel musters an army of 400,000. And Benjamin musters an army of 26,000. And then becomes... A fight. It's civil war. Here's what happens in the civil war. A few things happen. There ends up being three battles in the civil war. On day one, oh yeah, civil war, harmony's not included. Some of you get that. Some of you don't. On day one, 22,000 men from Israel's army are left dead. On day two, 18,000 men from Israel's army are left dead. And by the way, some of this doesn't make sense, right? Because Israel has an army of 400,000 and they're going out to meet Benjamin with an army of 26,000. But Israel's getting their butts handed to them. And on day three, Israel comes out and they ambush Benjamin. And of the 26,000 Benjamite soldiers, they killed 25,100. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, there's some, probably some math geniuses in here. Uh, how many people are killed in three days of battle? 65,100. I don't know why it says 65,000. 65,100. You can't believe everything that gets put up in front of you, okay? So here's what's happened. 
The story begins with a woman being raped all night long, killed and dismembered, and now the reaction to it has led to 65,100 men dying. Does anybody in the room notice that things are escalating? See, one of the things that the Bible is trying to tell us is, is, again, sin is never isolated. It's never personal. It's never individual. It's always communal, and it has this way of exploding. Um, how many of you uh, have ever uh, told a lie and then realized after you told the lie that you, 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 by the time it's over, you had to tell like 15 lies to cover up for the one lie? You know, that's a really innocent picture, but we've all experienced that probably. Uh, it, it, things have a way of magnifying and exploding. And so Israel hatches this plan. We're going we're gonna to take it to Benjamin, and they do. After they take it to Benjamin, in chapter 21, verses 1 through 7, uh, it says that, says that Israel feels guilty about it. And the reason they feel guilty is because Benjamin's their brother. Remember, uh, uh, a little Bible lesson. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Benjamin. The other 11, their tribes came out to fight them. And so they feel guilty because it's really they're fighting with their own brothers. They said, now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter to marriage in Benjamin. And the people of Bethel uh, came there the evening before God and they lifted up their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking? They realize, oh my gosh, we've almost completely wiped out one of our brothers. It's, we're right on the doorstep. And the next day the people rose early and they built an altar there and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So they've been cut to the heart and they hatched this plan. They hatch a plan. They hatch a plan to rebuild Benjamin. But there's a problem with their plan to rebuild Benjamin. And the problem is, is that when they set out to fight with Benjamin, they made two vows, okay? One of the vows we just read, um, uh, one of the vows they made was that none of us will give any of our daughters in marriage to Benjamin. None of us will give any of our family, no sons, no daughters in marriage to Benjamin. We're not going to do it. We're mad. We're not going to do it. So they made a vow before they went to fight. The other vow they made before they went to fight was this, that anyone who doesn't come with us to go and fight Benjamin, we're going to kill them. Come to find out there was one group of people in Israel who did not go to fight Benjamin. And it was, it was a little town uh, out on their lonesome. And it was, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead. The men of Jabesh Gilead. And so uh, they saw an opportunity. And it's the essence of, you can see the essence of all religion in, in the way they, they see this. They said, well, we've made a vow. We're not going to give any of our kids in marriage to Benjamin. And we've also made a vow that anyone who doesn't go and help us fight Benjamin before the battle, we're going to kill them. So they see an opportunity. And they said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go kill the men and the women in the town of Jabesh Gilead for not coming to fight with us. But we're going to save their virgin daughters and we're going to give them to Benjamin. This is the essence of religion. Anytime you're willing to go and commit further acts of unrighteousness so that you can maintain your appearance of righteousness, you know you're screwed up. So this is basically the idea. Uh, we've killed a bunch of people, our own brothers, and now we're going to solve the problem by killing a bunch of people. Here's the problem. They go and do it. They wipe out the town of Jabesh Gilead, and they round up all the virgins who have never been with a man and they need 600. The problem is they only get 400. 
all those dead people and it still doesn't solve our problem. So now they hatch another plan. And in Israel, at that time, um, there is a, there's a festival that takes place. There's a new plan. And it's a yearly feast that happens in an area called Shiloh. So then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives of those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? So they have to come up with another plan. We need 200 more. And so there's this festival that happens in Shiloh. And they say, okay, I know what we'll do. Here's what we'll do. When the festival happens, we will tell the men of Benjamin who are still left without a wife, go out and grab the virgins who are dancing in the vineyards. And we'll go tell the virgin's daughters, don't, don't fight this, go with it. And in that way, we're not giving you daughters, but you're taking them. Does this make sense? It's the essence of religious thinking. We'd, we made a vow that we won't give our daughters to Benjamin. But Benjamin, we're going to set it up so that you can go steal a wife for yourself. And then we haven't broken our vow to the Lord. Does this make sense? Good. Everybody feeling good this morning? Feeling encouraged? Loving Jesus more? Then I want to read you the last few verses out of Judges. Chapter 21, 23 through 25. This is the very end of the book. It says, And the people of Benjamin did so. They took their wives according to the number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to the inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And then the, those ringing words, and the, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So here's what we have this morning before we get to application. Here's what we have. Number one, uh, we have a marital dispute. Number two, we have attempted homosexual rape. Number three, we have the rape and murder of an innocent woman. Number four, we have the dismemberment of that woman. Uh, number five, we have civil war. No harmonies. Uh, number six, we have the killing of the people of Jabesh-Gilead. Number seven, we have 400 daughters taken from Jabesh-Gilead. Number eight, we have 200 more daughters stolen at Shiloh. Number nine, everyone goes on as if nothing ever happened. Heck of a story. So one of the things we might want to ask ourselves now is, what do we make of all this? What do you make of all this? One of the other questions we might ask ourselves is this, where in the world is the word of the Lord in this sordid story? Well, the first thing I want to tell you this morning is this. Everything that we've looked at so far this morning is a picture of what it looks like when people do what's right in their own eyes. This is what it looks like when people do what's right in their own eyes. When the men of, of Gibe went and knocked on the door and said, bring out the Levite that we might rape him, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. When the men of Gibe went ahead and raped his concubine till she was dead, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. When the Levite pushed his own wife out the front door to save his own skin, he was doing what was right in his own eyes. When he cut her to bits, he was doing what was right in his own eyes. When Israel nearly wiped out one of their own brothers, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And when more killing to cover up and restore Benjamin, to wipe out the town of Jabesh-Gilead, when that plan was hatched, the people of Israel, was do they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And when they stole women from Shiloh, 
innocent young girls, when they kidnapped them and gave them to men that they did not know, they were doing what was right in their own eyes. And so now I have a question for you. It's a really important question. Maybe the most important question you've heard in a week. It's very simple. It's this. Who in this room this morning would like to live in a world or a country where everyone can just do whatever they want? Got any takers? Anybody here want to live in a world where everybody can do whatever they want? No takers. I have another question for you. Do you want to trust your future to a people who does what's right in their own eyes? Anybody in the room want to trust their future to people who are doing what's right in their own eyes? Who wants to live with that kind of freedom? Who wants to live with that kind of freedom? The first thing I'd like you to notice about that kind of freedom is that when you're living in a world where everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes, the most basic response is violence. Have we noticed that this morning? Like every, everything, the whole story is violence and sexual perversion. Violence and sexual perversion are always the most, it's the low-hanging fruit of a world where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. And it's really, it's really tilted toward violence. And the reason it's tilted toward violence is this. Because people are doing what's right in their own eyes, um, they are oftentimes coming to get me or coming to take what's mine. And so in an effort to save my own skin or to protect what's mine, the only response is violence, right? So all, every violent act is met with violence. Uh, every, every foolish act is is met with with violence and so sexual perversion and violence those are the two hallmarks of living without a king it's the reason if you remember jesus's words in the sermon on the mount uh the very first thing after jesus deals with uh the beatitudes the very first couple things that jesus gets to is what anger and lust in the heart why why is jesus starting there because it's the essence of, of what it means to begin to live in the kingdom of heaven. To begin to live with the king. It means that we, we have to begin to deal with the anger and the violence in our own heart. And the lust of, in our own heart. Because these are the things that just sort of happen when people are doing what's right in their own eyes. So you see, freedom, real freedom, isn't doing whatever you want whenever you want, with whomever you want. Freedom is living with God as our King. Freedom is living with God as our King. Freedom is a person, and it's Jesus Christ. You see, if God is our King, then we are not. And if we are not, then we are His subjects. And if we're His subjects, then we live for His pleasure. If we live for His pleasure, then we live within His boundaries. And His boundaries are always, 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 always for us. Always for us. And if freedom is a person, then freedom is relational. This is a big deal. If freedom is a person, and by the way, freedom is a person, it's Jesus Christ. Because freedom is a person, because it's Jesus Christ, freedom is always relational. Freedom is not systematic. Freedom is not ideological, and freedom is not government. There's not a government in the world that can give you freedom, least of all, the American government. And we have strong ideological connections, especially in America, uh, living in the home of the free and the land of the brave, that, that, that we receive freedom from our government. I'm here to tell you, you don't receive freedom from your government. You can't receive freedom from your government. The only place that you can receive real, everlasting freedom is from Jesus. Freedom is, rel- is relational. 
Bob Dylan got it right. Bob Dylan got it right. He said, you got to serve somebody. It might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. Uh, the truth this morning is this, is that everybody in the room is a created being. And because we were a created being, we were actually designed to live with God as our king. Like The, the only way that, that you and I really work is if we're living with God as our king. Nothing else really works. Nothing else really, really works. Uh, when you and I do live with God of our, as our king, life begins to work and this rhythm begins to happen. Now, I want you to understand, when you and I begin to live with God as our king, it doesn't mean that life becomes easy. In fact, sometimes it's going to become radically more difficult. But, the, but it does work, and there's a rhythm to it. Okay? It does work, and there's a rhythm. Um, when you and I live with God as our king, we're cared for, and we don't have to be anxious. Uh, you guys remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden? They were in the garden, and, they, and it's, the Bible says that they walked with God. This is, this is a picture of biblical freedom, the thing that you and I were designed for. Adam and Eve were in the garden, and they walked with God. Uh, it says in the cool of the day, God would just show up, and they'd walk around with him. And in, in that garden, there was unbelievable freedom. God says to Adam and Eve, you can uh, name all the animals. I'm not even going to do it. Like, I, I'm going to co-create with you, Adam. I'd like to do some of this with you. Like, name them anything, you know, lion, duck, platypus. You know. and, and what's really great about this is that God never vetoes Adam on any of it. Sounds great to me. I love that. Elephant, love it. Terrific. Nailed it. And God says, you can eat of any tree you want, like anything in here, any, anything, do whatever you want, anything in here, you can go for it. But there's one thing you can't do, and you can't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we see, even in the Garden of Eden, is that people were made to live with God as king, that when they do, they're cared for, and there's no reason to be anxious. But what we also see is that even in the Garden of Eden, there were boundaries. And the boundaries were for them. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the knowledge of good and evil, when they ate of that tree, they crossed a boundary. And when they crossed a boundary, what they were really doing is they were living, they were living as though there was no king, and they were living doing what was right in their own eyes. Crossed the boundary, took liberty, they did what was right in their own eyes, enter sin and death. You see, freedom is living with God as our king, Inside his boundaries. That's where the good life is. The, there's, the only place that there's a good life is with God as our king inside his boundaries. Anything outside of that? Disaster. Uh, some of you all remember uh, Jesus' one of his most famous parables is a uh, parable of the prodigal son, right? Prodigal son says to his father, give me all your stuff. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. And prodigal son takes the stuff and he leaves his father's house. When does the, father, when does the prodigal son get into trouble? When he leaves his father's house, like when you, when you leave the father, there's no good life. When he, when he comes back, there's a good life again. And so when you cross God's boundaries, it leads to disaster. Um, secondarily, uh, God says in, in the scripture, he says, don't commit adultery. And for some people in our culture, and I understand this, I understand this, but there's a lot of our culture that says, oh man, like the Bible is so such a bummer like why why does god have to mess in our sexual lives like why is god saying don't commit adultery well for a lot of people maybe even people in this room um, some of us here and certainly some people in broader culture believe that god is saying things like don't commit adultery because 
he knows that if you have sex with someone who isn't your wife or isn't your husband, that it'll be really satisfying. It'll be like the best sex of your entire life. It'll be so satisfying, and it's going to make you so happy. And because it makes you happy, uh, it's going to make God angry. And so what God wants to do is he wants to draw a line around things that are going to be really fulfilling and, and make you happy so that you can be miserable, and so long as you're miserable, God will be happy. Now, I know that was complicated, but that is the worldview that a lot of us carry around. You know, God is saying, don't commit adultery because he doesn't want us to be happy. In fact, he's drawing boundaries around things. He's he's keeping us from being happy. Jesus! You know, it's like, and you just get, we get so angry. It's like, oh, when in fact, God is actually just drawing boundaries around things that would lead to absolute disaster. All right, let's talk about adultery for a minute. What happens when you commit adultery? Well, number one, uh, you're going to break your heart. Your heart. Your heart will break. If you commit adultery, your heart will break. You're going to end up with a broken heart. This is why. Because um, adultery never stays hidden. Never, never, never stays hidden. Like, you can go meet in Lexington. You will meet people from Campbellsville and Lexington. I promise you. It never stays hidden. You 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 could take a trip... You could take a trip to Dallas, Texas. You will meet someone you know. Have you ever noticed that you could, when you leave Campbellsville, you always meet people you know? It was, uh, two years ago, I'm in uh, the Los Angeles airport about to catch, catch a flight and go to Portland. And I'm not joking. Right down the right, I just get off the plane. I look up. There's someone from Campbellsville. Hey, bro, what up? You, it will be found out. So what happens when you commit adultery? Your heart will be broken. And you will break her heart or his heart. And your wife's heart will be broken or your husband's heart will be broken and your children's heart will be broken and there might be a baby you weren't planning on. And then if that doesn't satisfy you, there might be an abortion. Now, who wants to have an affair? Anybody in the room? Takers? See, God isn't trying to draw the boundaries around things that make us happy. And he's not trying to say, I would like you to be miserable. I'm going to withhold that from you so that you'll be miserable and then I can be happy. What he's trying to say is it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I love what Richard Rohr says about sin. He says, sin is what doesn't work. We always have these like really complicated definitions of what sin is. Well, you know, sin is doing like, like not, not, not following God. And you know, (laughs) sin is, sin is missing the mark, brother. It's just, it just means you missed the mark. No, No, sin is what doesn't work. Adultery doesn't work. It doesn't work. Some of us may have to try it a couple times before we learn that. Sin doesn't work. It's what doesn't work. And so God isn't, God isn't this monster who's looking for ways to make us unhappy. He's actually trying to protect us. Freedom is a person. It's Jesus Christ, and it comes with some boundaries. That's right. Freedom freedom has boundaries. It's living with God as our king inside of his boundaries, and freedom always has boundaries. The truth is this morning is that everybody in the room is serving something. We're designed this way. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? And everybody in the room is either is one of these two kinds of slaves. Either you're a slave of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. A little bit later in in Romans chapter 6, Paul says that basically everybody's either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. 
in, in the room this morning, everybody here and everybody out there is someone who's either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Everybody in the room, everybody alive, everyone who's ever been alive is a servant to something. Bob Dylan was right. You're going to serve somebody. The reason you're a servant to someone is because we're created beings and God has made us to serve him. Like, so there's, there's no one who's a king unto, them, to, unto their own minds or through their own will. There, there, are, there are no real kings in the universe. There's just one. His name is Yahweh. Everyone else is serving something. So you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to righteousness. And again, I want you to notice something in verse 16. That obedience leads to righteousness, and righteousness is a, fancy, uh, is a fancy theological word, which really just means being in right relationship with God. That's what righteousness means. It means that you're in good standing with God, that you're friends. And so here, again, what do we see? That freedom is what? Relational, right? Freedom is relational. There, freedom is in Jesus. That's it. That is it. And by the way, we're able to be obedient because we're living, we're living of a place of being in good standing with God. When, when you have faith in Jesus, God declares you righteous. We're fighting, we're fighting from victory, not for it. Some of us are like, man, how can, I, how can I become a good person? Well, if you believe in Jesus, you already are. Even if your life doesn't manifest any of it. You're already a good person. It's, part, it's like the really great news in the gospel. Like even if you're a rotten person and you've begun to trust Jesus, God says that rotten person is actually great. I love him. I, you're, you're not trying to become righteous. You already are. You already are. Um, Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Paul says some things that are really interesting. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him. Stop right there. We know that our old self will one day be crucified. No, Paul says our old self was crucified. So somehow, mystically, mysteriously, when Jesus was on the cross, it wasn't just Jesus on the cross, you were on the cross. And when Jesus got laid in the grave, it wasn't just Jesus in the grave, Jesus had like billions of people in the grave with him. And when Jesus got up on Sunday morning, it wasn't just Jesus who got up, billions of people got up with him. In Romans chapter 5, 18 and 19, I don't have time to put it up this morning. I, what we see is that, the, is that the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus isn't just for a few people. It was total for everybody. Total for everybody. And so Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified. What is our old self? Our old self is that part of you and that part of me that wants to do what's right in our own eyes. Can I tell you something this morning? That old self that wants to do what's right in our own eyes no longer exists. You don't have it anymore. If you believe in Jesus, you don't have it anymore. And I can hear your brains turning. Your brains are like, I don't understand this. Of course I have it. Some days I, I do what's right in my own eyes. And not only that, but some days I really like doing what's, in my own, what's right in my own eyes. What's that about? Well, it's about three things. These are really important. So if you've got notes, you need to take them. This could change your life. <laughs> um, how is it that our old self that likes to do what's right in our own eyes can still be present and drive us crazy? Well, number one is this. We forget really easily. We forget really easy. What do we forget? Um, we forget just like Israel did. Uh, it says, in that day there was no king. That's inaccurate. There was a king. It's Yahweh. They just forgot him. 
And so one of the first ways that we begin to live in an old self that's already crucified and been laid in, into the grave is we, we begin to re-empower that dead man by believing and forgetting God. We just, we just forget God. We forget to believe Jesus. And we just, we just forget. We just wake up. We get busy at work. Uh, we get a couple papers due. Uh, we uh, get a little bit behind on our taxes. And the next thing you know, I don't remember God anymore. And now all of this, this old stuff that was actually crucified and laid in the grave with Jesus begins to resurface. Um, the truth is, uh, there is a king, and we belong to him. And one of the keys to living the empowered life is re- just remembering that there is a king, and I'm not him. Just remembering God. Uh, number two, you, uh, you were born into sin, and you didn't even know God. When you were born from your mom, you were born into sin, you didn't even know God. And when you put faith in Jesus, the Bible says in, in, in the Gospel of John that you're born again. John uses this image of being born again. Uh, how many of you know that little bitty babies have to learn everything? Right? Uh, so... My wife and I, we just had our fourth born about four months ago, and he's terrific. And, uh, and he's an idiot. He knows nothing. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. He's in the process of learning everything right now, right? He's really cute. He's fat. We call him Cheeseburger. But for all intents and purposes, he's the village idiot in our house. He doesn't know anything. And so one of the first things that he's going to learn is uh, uh, Rowan is in the process of learning uh, the, the house rules and the family culture, right? And one of the things that Rowan has loved right now is uh, one of the things that he's learned in the past four months is that if he cries, somebody will come and get him. It's the kingdom. You, like when, you, when a baby's born, they have to learn everything. They have to learn that when they cry, their moms will come and get them. And then a little bit later, they have to learn how to talk. They have to learn the language. And then a little bit later, they learn like the house rules and, and just sort of the vibe, the culture at the house. You have to learn that. And so when you're born again, you don't, you don't just, it's all in you, but you don't know it, right? Rowan's capacity to know language and to be a social being and to be intellectually capable, it's all there, but he hasn't accessed it yet. He's growing into it. When you become born again, you're growing into something you already have. And so you have to learn the language of the kingdom. Some of us have been, uh, have been followers of Jesus for 35 years and still don't know how to talk like the kingdom. You should start learning the language of the kingdom. By the way, it has nothing to do with violence at all. Nothing. Zero. They're incongruent. We need to learn a new language. Um, you also need to learn the, the house rules, and, uh, and you need to learn the culture of the house. Some of us have been followers of Jesus for 20 years. We, we, we still don't understand what the, the kingdom boundaries are, and we still keep pushing them like a little two-year-old who wants to put his tongue into a light socket. Yeah, don't do that. It's not going to be good for you. So we have to learn everything. One of the reasons that we're struggling with an old man that's dead is because we're in this process of learning what the new man is. You already have it. You just have to learn it. And the third reason we struggle is this. Uh, Human beings are principally people who understand the present in terms of our own particular history. Did you catch that? Everybody in this room is principally a person who understands the present moment based upon their individual history. This is a little bit complicated, but you guys are smart. What does that mean? What it means is, is my grid for understanding this moment, uh, this day that I'm living in, 
It has been shaped, formed, and fashioned by my history. For instance, I don't go and stick my tongue into light sockets because I've had some experiences with electricity which were not pleasant. Anybody here ever been shocked? See, here's what happens when you get shocked. You get shocked once, you learn like 5,000 things that quick, right? I don't... Here's what I've learned about electricity. Like, if I turn the light and it doesn't turn on, and I change the bulb and it doesn't turn on, I just call Justin. I'm not doing anything else with it. Electricity scares the out of me. It scares me. I learned. I got shocked once. I learned like five million things. Yeah. So what I'm saying is, is that everybody here understands the present basically based upon the past. The past, which is connected to your old self, which is unbelieving and a rebel towards God. However, to live in the new man that Jesus has already provided for you, you have to look into the future, and in the future you can't see it, and it takes eyes of faith, and you have to access it and bring the future into the present. Okay? So you're never, ever, ever going to live in the fullness of the new man until you learn how to look with eyes of faith into the future and bring it into the present. Like, if you, if you never change, God is going to receive you. If you've been a person who believes in Jesus, even this month, He's going to receive you into His kingdom. He's going to say, I love you so much. You're great. Awesome. And you're going to go, I've been this the whole time. Dang it. Let me bring this into the vineyard a little bit. Let me say it like this. Here in the vineyard, we believe in uh, we believe in the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in healing. Uh, uh, we believe that people can be oppressed by demonic spirits. We believe that Jesus has power over those. Uh, every single week here in the vineyard, uh, somebody gets healed. Usually more than somebody. Some bodies get healed. There's just reports of healing all the time. The kingdom of heaven breaks in and heals somebody. And here's what's happening. Um, nobody here has the power to heal. It's all Jesus and it's his kingdom. But what we do is we pray and the future comes into the present and establishes something that wasn't there. Uh, you understand there, are, there is no cancer in heaven, and so we pray for, for cancer to go away, and what really happens is that God's kingdom, which most people assume is a far-off place and in, living in another time, breaks into the present. The future comes back into the present. It explodes, and what you end up with is a cancer-free body. And a lot of us in the room have a theological grid for that, and we even have some expectation of that. The thing we don't have a theological grid as much for, and the thing we have less of an expectation for, is that who I am, the righteous me, needs to be pulled out of the future and into the present. And you can only do that with faith. If, if you live life looking back at your past, if who you are is principally based upon your history, you will never live in the fullness of the righteousness that Jesus has already provided for you and the person that you already are. It's an impossibility. It doesn't exist. And so in the same way that we proclaim healing, in the same way that we proclaim freedom from demonic spirits, is the very same way that we access the righteousness that Jesus has already provided for us. We look with eyes of faith. We bring it. We bring it. Does this make sense? Is this, I hope so. I hope so. Because this is what it means to live with a king. Everybody here is going to serve something. If you've put your faith in Jesus, you've already been declared righteous, you might as well live like it. He's with me. You better listen to me. More of that, Bobby. More of that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. a bit of action and then we'll be finished here 
Uh, two things I need you to do this week. You should write this down on your iPhone. Meditate upon this. Because we don't, at the vineyard here, we don't, we don't want to be people who are just living where everybody does what's right in their own eyes because we know that's going to be a disaster. First thing I need you to do is just remember God. Israel didn't. In those days, there was no king. Yes, there was. His name's Yahweh. His name's Jesus. There is a king. Remember that there is a God. Remember that there is a king and that you're not him. Invite him into your life. Number one, remember God. Number two, remember that you are members of of his kingdom right now. Right now, if you've put faith in Jesus, you're already a member of the kingdom. It's not that one day you'll be a member of the kingdom, it's that you're already a member of the kingdom. And one day, you're going to see it even more. But some of what you what you think is stuck in another day is actually ready for today. It just takes faith to bring it in. Remember that you're a member of his kingdom right now, up to and including your own righteousness. You're already a righteous person. I'm not fighting for righteousness. I've already got righteousness. I'm living from it. Amen? Remember that you're a member of His kingdom right now. Right now. A lot of us have grown up believing that the kingdom of heaven is another place and it's another time. It's baloney. This idea that, uh, that I'm going to believe in Jesus and one day I'll go to heaven is an, an, a completely inaccurate idea. I know that you grew up believing that in, in, in the South. We've all been told... Give your heart to Jesus so you don't go to hell and one day you can go to heaven. It's, that is, I, this is what I've come to believe as a pastor. That is 1% accurate. There's another 99% that's incredible and we haven't accessed it at all. The truth is, uh, believe in Jesus. Give Him your life. And everything that you thought was stuck in another day can come forward. Jesus is almost, when Jesus talks about heaven and eternal life, He's almost never talking about tomorrow. He's almost always talking about today almost always I feel like somebody doesn't believe me I want to read one more scripture and then we're going to be done John chapter 17 verse 3 Jesus defines eternal life this is Jesus' prayer this is what eternal life is he says and this is eternal life that they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. It's relational. When can you know the one true God and Jesus that he sent? Is it now or later? Both and. Now and later. It's now. Eternal life is not tomorrow. It's today. It's not after. You don't have to die to experience eternal life. It's today. It's today. The good stuff is not later. It's today. If you've, if you've been duped by a theology that says the good stuff is later, it's terrible theology. Terrible. Amen? Amen. Hey, if I've got a uh, ministry team this morning, why don't you come on up? Awesome. Hey, Bree and Brian. Mm-mm. River and Sammy. Word up. Sammy. I'm, I'm really good today. My brain's been fried all morning. Good. Oh, man. Hey, why don't you guys stand up? I want to pray for you.
Anybody in the room, anybody in the room been dealing with uh, uh, messed up heart rhythm? Like you've even gone to the doctor, you've been thinking I'm going to go to the doctor about messed up heart rhythms? Anybody? Feel like I heard that this morning? I know it's sort of awkward, but it's okay. We got people here who want to pray for you. I oftentimes get really strange words of knowledge while I'm preaching. Anyway, why don't you do this? Why don't you put your hand on your heart? I want to pray for you this morning. Uh, God, we, we don't want to live as kingless people. Uh, God, we reject the notion that freedom is do whatever we want whenever we want. Uh, God, here at the Vineyard, we just, we, lay, we just lay hold of, God, as best we can, um, the reality that freedom is your son, Jesus. God, would you bring us in to that freedom even more? Father, I ask right now that you would just begin to wrap us even tighter in your arms. God, I ask that you would continue to awaken our heart to the presence of Jesus. Every day, God, would you allow us to live with, a, with an awareness of the presence of Jesus? God, we also ask that you would give us faith to believe the reality of what you've already paid for. God, I ask right now that you'd give us faith to believe that, that as believers in your Son, we are already righteous. God, for people in the room right now who are just, who are just blown up with guilt and condemnation, God, we, just, we take authority over that right now. We, we tell it to submit to the name of Jesus. God, I ask that we could, we could, feel, we could feel that reality, just even in our own bodies, God, we could, just, we could feel as white and as clean as we are, just white as snow. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you need prayer for anything, we've got a ministry teams up here. We'd love to pray for you. If you're sick in your body, uh, we want to pray for you. If you just need somebody to stand with you, come on up. Otherwise, give somebody a high five and a hug and be blessed.